Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. God bless you. It's good to see you again. Thank you to all of you who have helped us prepare for our big auction that's coming up this month. We are uh, running an auction and dinner fundraiser with live music. It'll be a great fun night, and it's going to help improve the campus here at our Glendora location for our preschool and our after-school program. They turn into mud pits when it rains, which has been happening a lot lately, or even just when we run the sprinkler systems. And so we're trying to upgrade the grounds a bit so our kids have a beautiful place to play. So thanks to all of you who have donated. There's amazing donations that you've given. There's tickets to Disneyland. There's timeshare vacations. There's BMX bikes. There's tennis lessons. You've given great gifts. And thanks to all of you who have gone ahead and bought tickets to that because it means a lot for our teachers and our kids to know that they're supported by the church. There has uh, been a church here for many decades. Uh, It was very tiny and uh, often uh, was sort of in a different world than the preschool. And the teachers and the kids are, are so thankful that you are a church that cares about them and invests in them. Uh, and I love coming on this campus because when I walk over here, uh, little children uh, on the playground yell out, hey, Pastor Jim, where's your, where's your pet dragon? Because I may have told them I had a pet dragon. That's another story. But anyway, God bless you all. Thank you for uh, supporting the auction. I'll look forward to seeing you there later this month. If you go to reallife.la slash auction, you can read more about it. Um, and now we are going to, we're going to continue in our series of studies in the Gospel of Luke about the life of Jesus, and we're going we're gonna to carry this series of teachings right up to Easter, and you're going to notice tonight, or, or this morning, I'm going to get to a night uh, in the life of Jesus that's uh, a little bit further down the road, because this weekend at Real Life Church is a communion weekend. We celebrate communion in the services, and uh, I want to look at the, the Last Supper Uh, on a weekend in which we're celebrating communion together. So today we're going to look at the story of Jesus at the end of his life when he breaks bread and passes the cup with his disciples. And I want to look at what that meal meant to them and what it means to us today. So as we get to those texts, let's pray together. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the way that you love us and that you called us to yourself. And I thank you that you left in our hands millennia ago symbols of our faith that tell us again what you did for us on the cross. Thank you for the the transformation that you won for us on that cross. And as we break the bread and pass the cup, we remember again the great promise that we have of salvation through you. Jesus, let that message sink deep into our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds to your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, we're going to look at a powerful and fascinating text, not just of the meal that Jesus shared, but the the meaning of that meal and what he said to his disciples immediately after it, because it all ties together in, in a really powerful way that you may have missed if you only read little sections of the Bible at a time. When you look at the whole big context of it, it is a fascinating story. So we're going to start at Luke 22, verse 14. Follow along in God's Word. When the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They didn't have chairs. They lay on the floor. Reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows prophetically what's going to happen to him. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, he's celebrating the Passover meal with them. If you haven't grown up in church or grew up in a church that didn't really teach the background of this story, this is important. You have to understand what this meal is and what it meant to them. The Passover meal had been with them for hundreds of years, for maybe 1,500 years, back to the time where the Hebrew people had been in slavery in Egypt. And God called Moses to go and confront the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no and resisted. And so God sent plagues upon Egypt, plagues of locusts and flies and the Nile turned to blood, all these disasters, and still Pharaoh refused to let the, he, the Hebrew people go until at the 10th plague, God's spirit passed over Egypt and the firstborn of all the Egyptians died. And in an outcry, they chased the Hebrews out of their land. And so the, the Hebrew people fled out of slavery that they had been in for hundreds of years, off to freedom and off to the land that would be their own. And every year thereafter, they would celebrate an Independence Day, just like you and I do on July 4th, where they would remember their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And they would gather around and share a meal called the Passover meal. We call it the Passover meal because God's Spirit passed over Egypt. And at the Passover meal, as surely as you and I eat hot dogs and Coca-Cola on the 4th of July, they would have uh, uh, lamb together. Because at the, at the night they fled from Egypt, God said, take a lamb and eat it for dinner and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that will mark your house as part of the people of God who belong to me. And so they would eat lamb at their, their Independence Day meal. And they would drink a cup of red wine and remember the blood of the lamb that protected their house. And they would break bread and pass it around. And it was, it was flat bread. It hadn't risen because they had to run out of Egypt in the middle of the night and didn't even have time for their bread to rise. So they ate flat bread out in the desert. So they would eat flat bread at their Passover meal. They'd eat bitter herbs and talk about how bitter it had been to be in slavery and how good it was to be free. In this narrative, there's an important part of the story. When Moses was a young man, he had seen an Egyptian uh, slave owner, an Egyptian uh, uh, soldier, beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses rose up and struck the Egyptian and killed him. And because of that murder, Moses had to run off into the desert, flee the authorities, and live decades of his life out shepherding in the desert. Because God had not yet called him to set his people free. Moses tried to get ahead of God and as a result lost decades of his life because God had not yet called him to go and set the people free. God would later say through the prophet Zechariah, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And part of the narrative of Moses' life 
is discovering that it was not by his own might or his own power, but by the power of God's Spirit that God's will would be done. And that sets us up for the story of what's going to happen with Jesus and his disciples around this table. Verse 17, after taking the cup, this is the the cup that they would pass around. And remember, this was to commemorate the the blood of the lamb that marked their their, um, doorposts. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And we tend to read that, and maybe we think we know what it means. Maybe we just skip over it. But pause a second and listen to what God is promising. There's a kingdom coming, a kingdom of God. And the first century Jewish people would have heard a physical kingdom here on the earth, a nation, a kingdom that will rise up against our Roman oppressors and throw them off and create a Jewish homeland again, just like they got 1,500 years ago with Moses when we had our own land. God's going to give us a kingdom again. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming, that's what they wanted. But they kind of missed it because it meant more than that. It meant something different than that. Today, it's not uncommon in the American church to hear the kingdom of God and think, oh, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about after we die, we go to the kingdom of God. But that's not quite it either. It's actually a little bit of both. Theologians like to talk about the kingdom of God as something that is already and not yet. It already comes because when we believe in Jesus, God's kingdom begins to form in our lives. We become citizens of a new kingdom. We live by a a new law. We're welcomed into a new citizenship. The kingdom of God starts now. And in the end, it will be fulfilled when we are reunited with Jesus and those who have followed him for eternity. So the kingdom of God has this already and not yet feature to it. Or as C.S. Lewis said, heaven and hell both work their way backwards into our lives. If we're on our way to heaven, heaven begins to creep its way back into our lives now, and we see God's redemption in everything we do, even in our suffering. Even in the hard parts of life, we see the kingdom of God working its way backwards into our lives now because God's kingdom is already and not yet. Verse 19, and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is a radical shift In the Passover meal, the bread was not anyone's body. It was a memory, a symbol of the fact that they had fled Egypt in the middle of the night and their bread didn't have time to rise. So this would have sounded strange to a first century Jewish listener, to Jesus' disciples. This is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Again, this would have been baffling to a first century Jewish listener. It's not your blood. It's the the lamb's blood. It's just a, a symbol. Jesus is transforming a borrowed symbol at this meal. 
It was a symbol of political freedom from the political kingdoms of this world so that they could establish their own earthly kingdom. And he is transforming and changing the ceremony and making it about him. And Independence Day, they had celebrated for more than a millennium. He makes about him. It would be like me saying, we've celebrated July 4th before as our independence from Britain a, a few hundred years ago. But now when you celebrate the 4th of July, you need to celebrate it as a memory of the fact that for a month, Real Life Church moved out of its Valley Center location into the, into the Glendora location. Right? If I came out with something like that on a Sunday, you would turn to whoever you came with and whisper, the pastor has gone loco. Let's just stay till the end so we don't provoke him. Right? He takes something national and he makes it local. He takes something historical and he makes it present tense. He takes something cosmic and he makes it about himself. That would have been strange to a first century listener, but many people, including the people at that table, also believe that he deserved that kind of acclaim. So note, before we go any further, the practical implications of what Jesus does here. He is transforming a borrowed symbol. He doesn't create a bunch of rules around it. He just says, hey, this symbol used to mean one thing, and now it's going to mean something different. So, so three things to note in particular. It does not require a priest to administer it. I encourage you to celebrate communion in your homes and in your small groups. Do it reverently, take it seriously, but in no way are you required to have an official of the church administer communion. Secondly, it doesn't say you have to be approved by the church to receive it. There are some churches that say you have to belong to their gathering in order to receive communion, which is nonsense. Historically, if you go back to the time of the Reformation 500 years ago, there were actually little tokens, little coins that they minted, and you had to get a, a coin from the pastor validating you to receive communion. He would investigate and interview you and make sure that you had lived a holy enough life to deserve communion, and then you got your little token that you could cash in to get communion at church. Absolute nonsense. It, it does not say at any point that the church gets to evaluate whether or not you're worthy of communion. And thirdly, it doesn't say how often to celebrate this meal. Remember, this was their annual Independence Day meal. And Jesus says, when you celebrate the annual Independence Day meal, do it in memory of me. My guess is he had in mind that they were going to do it once a year. It doesn't say do it every time you have a worship service. It doesn't say you need to do it once a month or once a quarter or anything else. Those are all human add-ons to this ceremony. The church has done grave ill historically by creating lots of laws where there are not laws and turning what was supposed to be a symbol into a place of legalistic control. That's not what this was meant to be. I once watched a board of elders sit around a table and debate angrily for 20 minutes whether or not they should put a fresh loaf of bread on the communion table every week, or if they could just leave a plastic one on for the weeks when they weren't actually having communion. 
20 minutes they went at it. And there were 20 of them in the room. I was a little intern at this church, so I just sat there and listened. And in my head, I multiplied 20 times 20. 20 minutes times the 20 people in that room. And out of that, I got 400 minutes we spent on that. And then I divided that by 60 minutes, which is how many are in an hour. And I came up with something like 60 hours, 6 hours and 40 minutes. 6 hours and 40 minutes of ministry time that were spent debating whether or not it was allowed to be a plastic loaf on the table on the weeks they weren't having communion. <clears throat> Some people say that the best proof that Jesus exists is that the church is still here after all the stuff we do. Verse 21, all that to say, the church does not need to create a bunch of rules around this meal. Jesus was taking a symbol and transforming it into a memory of what he would do for us on the cross. Verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of, which of them it might be who would do this. Poor Judas. What a terrible fate. Jesus prophetically saw it coming. And people ever since then have wondered why Judas did this. Why Judas, who saw Jesus work miracles, would betray him and hand him over to be crucified. Some scholars think that his name, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is not actually a last name. They think it uh, means that he is party, uh, part of the party known as the Sicarii, which was a group of Jewish assassins who wanted to throw Rome out. Uh, and Sicarii itself comes from the, the, word, the Latin word for dagger. Uh, so they were called the dagger men. Because what they would do is they would sneak into crowds in large public places and they would, they would stab somebody who was either a Roman or a Roman supporter and then sneak away before anybody realized where it came from. And that's what they were known for. And there's suspicion that Judas was part of that party. He'll go on to spiritually stab Jesus in the back and hand him over to be crucified. Some think it was not his intention that Jesus would be killed. It was that he expected that when he betrayed Jesus and Jesus was arrested, the, the crowds would uh, rise up and fight to get Jesus back and begin the revolution against Rome. But all that to say, note, Judas may well have been after an earthly kingdom, political power here on this earth. Let's throw Rome out because he had forgotten that it's not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, of the non-Jewish people, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. And this actually was a technical term for uh, a king who gave lands to uh, people who had served them faithfully. Like maybe as a general, if you were a good general in the army, the king would give you lands and authority over other people. And then you became a benefactor because you were responsible for all these people that the, the king had put under your authority. And so this was a, a supposedly a great honor, and it made people sort of, you know, hoity-toity. They were real proud of themselves. Verse 26, 
But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Because it's not by might, and it's not by power. It's by my spirit. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer upon you a kingdom. Now, don't miss what he's doing here. He's doing what he's just said the Gentile benefactors do. A king passes on a kingdom to the people who have served him well, and they then take authority. And this is what he's saying. I confer on you a kingdom. I I am a benefactor. I make you benefactors just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I am giving you a kingdom that is already and not yet. Now, look at the the grand theme that runs through what happens here and these conversations. They're all tied together. And you might miss this if you read it quickly or if you only read it in little sections. Look at how these all tie together so well. First, it goes from being a political symbol of earthly kingdoms being freed from earthly kingdoms to a spiritual symbol promising a heavenly kingdom the kingdom of God, which is not like the kingdoms of this earth. And then there is a contrast between Judas' pursuit of earthly power and Jesus' call to be a servant, not like the kings of the Gentiles who have earthly power. And then there's a contrast between the kings who create benefactors who abuse their power and Jesus creating benefactors who will serve. And that's where you and I come in. Be very clear on what Jesus Christ is promising you and I. Because it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by God's Spirit that we will serve and lead and go forward. Jesus calls us to his table. And it's important that we're clear on what we are being promised. In America today, it's possible to hear messages preached from pulpits in which we are offered the promise that the day will come where we rise up and take over the culture. We fight a culture war and we win. And we uh, reunite the, uh, the American population under principles that we believe stood firm at one point and have been lost. And our party will once again triumph over other parties. Whichever one it belongs to, everybody kind of does this the same way. And there's a hope that Jesus will back us when we go pursuing this kind of power. But look at what he said. It's the kings of the Gentiles who rule over people and try to dominate this earth. It's people like Judas. Woe to the one who does this, who betrays the Messiah in pursuit of an earthly power. Instead, take the symbol that represents conquest over the kingdoms of this earth 
and transform it into a symbol of a spiritual conquest over sin and death. It is a different kind of kingdom that he invites us to. And we do not bring about this kingdom by winning culture wars. We bring about this kingdom by serving one another in love. By not seeking to be the greatest or the first, but by seeking to be a servant. By seeking to be humble. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to create. And you see this in places where Christians live faithfully. Last Sunday at the church, and again today, I want to invite you to consider doing something that will spread God's kingdom on the earth. There's a, a multinational nonprofit organization called Compassion International that allows people to support children in developing nations. By the way, uh, I said last week uh, that I had been supporting children through Compassion International for decades, which is true. Uh, the, uh, the little kid in my neighborhood who's, I think, in first grade um, says to his mom, uh, he's, he's not sure whether or not he trusts that if he gives money to an organization that it, they'll give it where it's supposed to go. And his mom said, well, Pastor Jim says that he's been supporting Compassion International for decades. And this little first grade boy says, well, now I really don't trust it because Pastor Jim is only like 30 years old, right? And now I have a new best friend. Um, <laughs> side note. Compassion International allows you to support kids in developing nations. You exchange pictures with them. You can put their picture on your refrigerator. You write letters back and forth, send birthday cards. You send money every month, and that provides for food and clothing and school and housing and Christian education, everything they need to grow up healthy. And, and I supported a kid through um, Compassion International in the Philippines who I later found on Facebook. And he had gone to college, and he had gotten married, and he moved into an apartment, and he had escaped poverty. Uh, I've supported kids in Thailand. I supported a little boy who I actually got to meet at one point, uh, who both of his parents had died of AIDS. And he was living with a grandma and trying to find his way through life, he and his sister. Um, we supported a kid in Haiti who we lost contact with during a hurricane and never heard from her again. You, you and I are being invited to take part in a kingdom in which, by God's Spirit, you are given a heart of compassion like you could not have worked up on your own. And whereas, without God's Spirit, you may be able to love your own family and your friends, with God's Spirit within you, you will learn to have a deep compassion for people that you've never met before, for people who live on the other side of the world, for people in desperate need who you could go through life ignoring without suffering for it. And God will put a spirit in you that will not let you sleep at night.
knowing that there are people who need to be cared for. Don't go chasing after preachers who tell you that your job is to win a culture war and drive out people who disagree with you. They are not preachers of the gospel. They're preachers of the message of Judas Iscariot. Don't go trying to kill the slave owner to bring about change that needs to happen. Follow God's call. Because it's not by might. And it's not by power. It's by God's Spirit that the kingdom will spread. At our last pantry a couple weeks ago, I was talking to uh, a member of our church um, who I, I only said hello to in passing before. And uh, he told me that when he was a kid, his dad left the family. And it was his mom and I think his siblings, and they didn't have a lot. Uh, they didn't really have enough to make ends meet. He said, the church stepped in and helped out. And as a kid, he didn't realize what was happening. He said, all I knew is that my friends would come over and we'd go outside and play for a while while my mom was in the house with some people from the church. And when my friends left, The living room was painted, and the kitchen was full of groceries. He said, you know, as a kid, I didn't think anything about it. It, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized what the church was doing. And now he's, you know, getting on towards retirement age, and he says... All I want to do is pay it forward. All I want to do now is care for people at the pantry. And if there's anybody that you know of, he says to me, any widows who need help with their house or somebody who can't make ends meet, just just give me a call. And that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to create. As you take this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Remember that I go to the cross to take away your sins so that you're free from all the guilt and sin that you've worked yourself into and all the vying for kingdoms that this world will tell you to do. I'm going to set you free from all of that. And in place of all that, I'm going to put in your heart a kind of love, a kind of compassion that you would not be able to build on your own. The kind of conquest that Jesus is declaring in this world is a conquest that transforms hearts, it never forces them. So if you've never come to that place before, 
if, if that doesn't resonate with you, it's not something you bring about of your own effort. You just have to receive the gift that Jesus gave you on the cross. When he died for you, he made you innocent. And all you have to do is accept that. And then invite him in. Invite his spirit into your heart and into your life to make you someone different than you were. Something better than you were. Someone who knows how to love more compassionately than you ever could before. It won't all happen at once. It'll be kind of a slow transformation. There'll be sudden accelerations and some slow periods, but suddenly you'll realize you're on a path that's going in a new direction. You're, you're headed towards a new kingdom. And the day will come on the other side where that kingdom is fulfilled, where we celebrate together and take the cup in hand again with Jesus and those who loved him. In the meantime, his kingdom will start to change who we are right now. Because his is a kingdom that's already and not yet. And that is the message that he shared at that table 2,000 years ago. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us 2,000 years ago, for the cost that you paid for us. Thank you that by your Spirit, and not by our might or our power, thank you that by your Spirit, you're able to transform us into the people that you mean for us to be and the people that we want to be. Pour out that spirit of love and compassion into our hearts now so that we might be able to reach out in love to those close at hand and those far away to spread your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.